Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Oh my gosh. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host, of course, my guest host again. <laughs> Is my friend Matthew. Thanks for coming to help out once again. Hello, we, everybody. We had some amazing pizza for lunch. Uncle Fatty. Uncle Fatty. I love F-A-T-I-H. Yeah. If you great. live in Vancouver or the area, and this, we are not paid to say this, <laughs> Uncle Fatty's <laughs> amazing, <best. laughs> amazing pizza. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. The few, the proud, the poutines. Oh, wow. The few, the proud, the marines. Yeah, I know. Isn't that good? Yeah, it is good. <laughs> Rosemary Podges, 56, and her husband Alfred, 58, were found in a Pennsylvania ravine. They had been fatally shot in their Lock Arbor, New Jersey home over the 4th of July weekend in 1982. The apparent perpetrators, arrested by police five days later in Texas, were two 18-year-olds, Scott Robert Franz, Rosemary's son from a previous marriage, and Scott's Canadian friend, Bruce Anthony Curtis, who'd been Scott's classmate at King's Edgehill Private School in Nova Scotia, where the pair had just graduated. The events leading up to the deaths of Rosemary and Al Podges would be extremely important in establishing what led the two teens, both with promising futures ahead of them, to kill Scott Franz's mother and stepfather. Was it cold-blooded murder? Or, as Bruce would later claim, a tragic accident caused by a faulty firearm? This is Dark Poutine, episode 171, Tangled Web, The Shootings of Alfred and Rosemary Podges. Much of the research for this episode comes from the usual sources, court documents, and media reports. As well, extremely helpful was David Hay's book about the case called Blood Knot, or No Easy Answers, depending on the edition you get your hands on. Bruce Curtis was a smart young man and came from a solid family, settled in Mount Hanley on the North Mountain near Middleton, Nova Scotia, the town where I would go to school eight years after these tragic events in this case. 
Bruce's father, James, was a captain in the Canadian Armed Forces, and Bruce's mother, Alice, was mom to three grown children. Bruce had two older sisters, Anne, just married at 23, and Carol, the middle child. The Curtis family were doing well for themselves and lived on a large farm of over 750 acres, quite a spread in Nova Scotia. Bruce's parents saw potential in their son and wanted the best for him, so they sent him to Nova Scotia's prestigious private school in Windsor called King's Edge Hill. There, the Curtises felt that Bruce would get the start he needed to send him on the way to a career in science. Bruce aimed to be an astrophysicist, and he had gotten the marks he needed to gain acceptance into the science program at Dalhousie University in nearby Halifax, and would start the next fall. Several of my friends attended King's Edge Hill, a few not necessarily for their potential, but more for the structure provided by a strict private school away from home. For better or for worse, many Nova Scotian kids looked at the school as a place where you were sent, as a punishment, not as a reward. According to the Wikipedia entry on the school, quote, King's Edge Hill School is a Canadian private university preparatory boarding and day school located in the town of Windsor, Nova Scotia. It is the oldest English independent school in the Commonwealth outside the United Kingdom, founded by the United Empire Loyalists as King's Collegiate School in 1788 and granted royal charter by King George III in 1802. From the school's website, kes.ns.ca, their values page has some lofty ideals. It reads, Since 1788, our mission has been to create a stimulating, transformative culture that inspires students from all over the world to reach out and claim their true potential. Ours is a culture based on balance, yet stimulating environment, mutual respect, and support of education. Our balanced approach to student development means that all aspects of life are nurtured from academics and athletics to public service and spirituality. KES has a student body comprised of 350 students from around 20 different countries. The average class size of 13 students with an 8 to 1 student-teacher ratio is unheard of in public schools. The school boasts about 100% acceptance of their graduates into post-secondary institutions and their graduating classes earned more than one million dollars in university scholarships over the past 15 consecutive years. Not all the students at KES come from wealthy families. In fact, one in three students receive financial support to attend the school. Like many who are gifted when it comes to academics, Bruce Curtis struggled socially. He was quiet, and described as rather awkward, albeit a nice, well-spoken guy. He was tall and gangly and bespectacled. There was nothing outstanding about him as far as smart kids from his era go. He loved games like chess and the strategy game Risk, and he was into computers. According to David Hayes' book, No Easy Answers, Bruce was, quote, an honors student, had been a member of the debating team, a competitor on Reach for the Top, CBC's national quiz show for students, and was the school's resident authority on J.R.R. Tolkien. Bruce Curtis and Scott Franz met on school outings to Halifax to go to Radio Shack to learn about computers and electronics, but did not become friends until bonding over a strategy game. From David Hayes' book, Blood Knot. Quote, Curtis had not said more than a half dozen words to Scott Franz before the first semester of grade 12. One afternoon, playing Diplomacy, the World War I strategy game, 
Curtis, holding England and France with Italy, entered into an alliance. Up to that time, Curtis knew of France only as a braggart and a mythomaniac, not that he necessarily disapproved. He didn't care so long as a person had sufficient wit to keep the game interesting. End quote. Scott Franz, plain and simple, was a bullshitter. He claimed to come from a wealthy family with a giant mansion on the Atlantic, complete with servants like maids, a butler, and a chauffeur who drove Scott's own personal limousine. He even claimed his father was in the CIA. Scott was glib and charming. Even though people could see through his lies, he easily fit in with the different groups in the school, but tended to cause trouble between those different groups. Scott loved to gossip, especially about the girls at the school, and soon found himself in hot water with a girlfriend who broke up with him after finding out he was claiming she had done things with him that she had not. In May of 1982, only a month before graduation, a female friend of Bruce Curtis's took her own life with a 22 caliber rifle in her family's barn, despondent over a low marks on a physics exam. The friend's suicide affected Bruce Curtis deeply. Bruce wrote several diary entries filled with dark thoughts about her death. A few of his diary entries from the same time were in David Hay's book, Blood Knot. In one entry, dated May 28, 1982, Bruce wrote, quote, She shot herself. I shall follow him tomorrow for details. I have to know where. Very important. Get all the details, reaction, etc. Mood before whatever would cause her to waste her life. I hate the waste. End quote. He continued, quote, I really wished I had been there. Could have saved her. End quote. Bruce then quoted lyrics of some rock songs he felt relevant before signing off saying goodbye to his friend. He mixed a few more lyrics with his thoughts and wrote, quote, I close my eyes only for a moment and the moment's gone, swirling into madness, whirling and twisting, to the sight of demons robed in black. Revenge is necessary. End quote. On June 4th, Bruce's thoughts had darkened even further. He wrote a poem to his friend who had died by suicide, from Blood Knot. Quote, Purple skeins replace limbs, coins clang as madness rises, screaming silent building trees away. Silence cries, cries, cries to wind, shut up. Darkness peaceful walls around, I long to be dead, under while worms chew and mutilate my shrunken pale skin. I am nothing but dirt contributing to well-being, plants grow upon me. I rejoice. Nature reigns supreme in hollow of my chest. For nothing have I been, and nothing will I become. All illusions, visions, and ghosts before my eyes dancing to a deadly rhyme. Peace exists never. Chaos always throwing us about. Pieces fly off, blood dims our sight, and we walk like a drunkard stumbling over our dead friends. Maggots rise from their eyes and stomachs. We caress them. Partnerships in deception. Red filter, green filter, blue filter, white. Doors vast, innumerable, stretching on into infinity. We choose, always wrong, never close but distant. Vision is now clear for what is seen is hell, life. End quote. Bruce's grades were still pretty good. He'd gotten a 94% in physics, but some of his other marks had suffered. According to his teachers, Bruce had taken his foot off the gas in the last semester. He was failing to hand in work, and his attitude had taken a nosedive. He was uncharacteristically dark. 
hindsight would indicate that things began to go sideways for Bruce as he became more deeply involved with Scott Franz. Not uncharacteristically, Scott was up to no good. He had a falling out with some of his friends after being caught spreading lies, but he had managed to weasel his way back in. According to Bloodknot, Scott had in his backpack a jar of chloroform he had stolen that he called, quote, Franz's mystical mindfuck. Scott would allow the curious to make their heads swim by offering them big whiffs of the knockout drug from his jar. There was another odd chemistry-related incident around graduation day from King's Edgehill, which came on June 18, 1982. Two students fell seriously ill and had to be hospitalized. It turned out that they'd been poisoned by someone who had put liquid nicotine into their cream soda bottle overnight. The cream soda had been fine the night before, but they recalled it tasting funny the next day before they had fallen ill. When asked who'd had access to the bottle, they both had the same person in mind, Scott Franz. Sure enough, someone had broken into the chemistry lab stealing an amount of liquid nicotine. Scott was gone, though. He'd returned with his parents to their New Jersey home. The international students who had been poisoned also had returned to their respective countries, Portugal and Hong Kong. By the time the RCMP put two and two together, it was pretty much too late to take any real action based on hearsay. Bruce Curtis thought that when he'd said goodbye to Scott Franz on graduation day, they might not see each other for a while, if ever again. Bruce Curtis was surprised when Scott Franz called the Curtis home on June 23rd asking Bruce to come to New Jersey for the Independence Day weekend. Bruce said he couldn't manage it, but his parents offered to pay for their son's airfare as his graduation present. Bruce's mom would later indicate her regret at not having looked into Scott Franz and his family more closely before entrusting their 18-year-old son to them. She said in Blood Knot, quote, We put ridiculous trust in that school, says Alice angrily. We figured that anyone who went to the school would be reasonable. Bruce had spent a number of weekends with various people at different times. We never knew about that, but it was always okay. They were all families from the school, so we figured this family would be okay. Alice and Jim had no idea at the time that Bruce's stay in the United States would be years longer than the short visit that they had planned. And we'll take a break right here. All right, so we're halfway through the show, Matthew. What are your thoughts so far on this case? Two things. Okay. Um, you go through his diary entry. Yes. And I'm like, okay, inevitably, when you keep talking, we're going to talk about how they try, will try to put that into evidence, most likely, about how he's some psychotic killer. Right. Um, because of what he wrote. And the second point that I was thinking is, hmm, the company you keep. So on the first point, mm -hmm. you know, it's, I've seen it over and over again on this show yeah. and on other true crime that I watch where, you know, there's almost this like anti-intellectualism amongst the flatfoots, right? Yep, and yep. like if you read Nietzsche or if you've done this or that, it's like, oh, Satanists, you know, right, there's this exactly. weird anti-intellectual thing. And this kid is obviously an intellectual, right? Mm -hmm. He's smart. And I just, I just can picture them trying to use this to, to, to say that he was like this in a death cult or something when in fact it was a teenage boy probably one of the first people that he knows died right by suicide trying to make sense of it by writing stuff down which is actually really healthy yeah right? totally it is <laughs> yeah know? writing it out uh trying to understand it to work it out in your head and 
uh, maybe even dealing in that dark imagery that he did. Yeah, I mean, it's, it doesn't it, make him a bad person. I mean, it makes him a bad writer, <laughs> right? But, but like, it's just so bad. It's so teenage angst. A little dust in the wind. But it's not sort of Shakespeare, you know, Pr- Prospero's speech, right? Yeah. Right. That that point, you know, the cloud, the cloud capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself. Yea, all but which it inherit shall dissolve and leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with sleep. Essentially, that's what he was writing. Yeah. He was talking about, you know, what's the meaning of it all? We just become worm food. Yeah, it's fleeting and then right. it's not important. And I can, just, I can just picture the DA. He's a Satanist. He probably read some Nietzsche or something. and <laughs> Ubermensch. Exactly. You know, there's a great book called The Doe of Homer. And one of the chapters oh, is, no. is Lisa Simpson and an, American anti-intellectualism. And the other one is essentially, it's it's Nietzsche and Bart and how Bart is the ubermensch. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's like a 2001 book called The Doe of Homer. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Back to the show. On June 29th, 1982... Scott Franz and his stepfather, Alfred Podges, went to the Newark airport to pick up Bruce Curtis, who'd flown there from Halifax via a quick plane change in Boston. The plane was late arriving. Scott and Alfred got into a heated argument because Alfred thought the lateness of Bruce's plane would cost additional parking fees and would also interfere with a date he had with a fellow baseball card collector. Bruce was taken aback by what he realized on his arrival. There was no limo. There was no chauffeur, just Alfred, Scott's stepdad, driving a crappy van. As they pulled up to the home at the corner of 401 Euclid Avenue in Lock Arbor, Allenhurst, New Jersey, Bruce realized that there was no manner by the sea either. It was also clear that, by the angry, hateful way that Scott and his stepfather spoke to each other, that there was no love lost between them. Nor was Alfred Podges a rich man. He was a letter carrier. A respectable career for sure, but it was clear that Scott, perhaps feeling less than the wealthy kids at King's Edgehill, had lied at length about his true circumstances. Over the next few days, Bruce Curtis would learn just how bad things were in the Podges' home. He would be introduced to a world of domestic violence and verbal abuse that he had not encountered in his own home. According to the Dalhousie Gazette, printed on February 25, 1985, Al was an avid collector of baseball cards valued at over $20,000. But that was not the only thing he collected. There were also his guns, at least a dozen of them, and many of them were displayed openly. It was an alien world to Bruce Curtis. Things were so tense between Scott and his stepfather that Scott and Bruce spent as much of their time out of the house as they could to avoid run-ins with Al, who took every opportunity he had to belittle Scott, not to mention how much he verbally abused Rosemary. On July 1st, Scott went to the Englishtown post office to visit his mother at her job. Rosemary asked him to put gas in her car and purchase a box of 30 caliber ammunition for Al. Scott and Bruce went to the store and bought the ammunition, brought it home, and left it on the table for his stepfather. Later that day, Scott Franz and his stepfather had an argument over a $389 social security check, which Scott Franz received monthly because of the death of his natural father. There were several more tense moments the next day because Al Podges left for work without taking Scott Franz with him. Scott needed a lift and was late for his work at an auto parts store 
as the result of being left behind. Things got serious as Scott and Al continued arguing. As Scott, Alice, and Bruce were on their way out the door to go for dinner to give Al some space, Al punched Scott in the face. Scott was livid. Much of the following is paraphrased from court documents in the case. On July 3rd, Bruce and Scott were cutting the lawn at 401 Euclid Avenue. At around 11 a.m., they observed Al put some boxes containing rifles into his van, covering them with towels, and then locked the van again. Franz described his stepfather as, quote, being hyper, because his face was totally red and he was walking in an odd way. To avoid Al, who was clearly in a bad mood, Scott and Bruce went to the Seaview Square Mall where they remained until 9.30 p.m. When they returned to Scott's home, the young men hid in the crawl space under the porch when they heard Scott's parents arguing loudly. They decided they would wait there for Al to go to bed before entering the house. Scott later claimed he had heard Al Podges say he never should have married Rosemary because some of her children were too much trouble. Later that night when Al came outside to take Scott's moped inside for the evening, the young men heard him say, quote, If I get my hands on that son of a bitching kid, I'll kill him. End quote. Scott and Bruce were afraid to enter the house that night until very late, fearing a violent confrontation with Al Podges. On Sunday morning, July 4th, Scott snuck upstairs to get his checkbook and to get Bruce's traveler's checks from Bruce's bag in Scott's room. Al Podges confronted Scott while upstairs and fired a rifle shot at Scott Franz, narrowly missing him. Scott dropped Bruce's tote bag and ran out of the house, telling Bruce what had happened and that they needed to leave right away. These violent altercations with Al Podges and others were not isolated incidents. From an article in the Dalhousie University Gazette on February 25, 1985, quote, Al Podges was known to police and the community as an extremely violent man. Over the years, local police logged 147 visits to the Podges home to act on complaints. The ramshackle house was riddled with bullet holes from Al Podges' shooting sprees. He had assaulted two of Scott's sisters with heavy objects, attacks which put each of them in the hospital. But the worst was reserved for his wife Rosemary, Al broke her arm on two separate occasions and once pushed her down a flight of stairs, breaking her back. All the children left this house of horrors as early as they could. Rosemary Podges didn't leave. But in an effort to spare her youngest son Scott from the constant abuse of his stepfather, Rosemary saved every cent she could from her clerical job to send him to King's Edgehill. He gained a reprieve, but nothing changed at the Podges' home. Bruce and Scott spent the remainder of the 4th of July in Asbury Park and returned to Scott's home very late that night. Before Scott, Franz, and Bruce Curtis entered the home that night, Scott broke into the locked van containing the box of rifles and took two rifles and a box of bullets. Scott said they needed protection from Al before they could get their stuff and leave town. Al had already shot at Scott once that day. He might not miss the next time. From court documents, quote, one of the guns removed from the locked vehicle was loaded. Franz unloaded that gun by ejecting the shells. He then loaded one half of the shells into each of the two rifles. Bruce Curtis said he did not know how to load the rifle. Scott handed one of the loaded rifles to Bruce with the shells in the magazine, but no shell in the firing chamber. The hammer was in the safety position. 
Bruce and Scott slept Sunday night on the sofa in the living room with the rifles on or underneath the sofa, end quote. On Monday morning, July 5th, Bruce and Scott got up at approximately 7.30 a.m. Rosemary went into the kitchen to make French toast for breakfast. Bruce was sitting in the living room on the sofa with his loaded rifle nearby. Scott said that he wanted to go upstairs to take a shower. However, before leaving to go up, Scott told Bruce, quote, If Al tries anything like shooting at me, then I'm going to shoot him. And if you have got to go out of the house shooting, go ahead. Scott Franz took with him one of the rifles, a loaded thirty caliber, upstairs to take his shower. Soon after he went upstairs, Scott claimed that he got into an argument with his stepfather in the master bedroom. The argument was over Al's having shot at Scott the day before. Things escalated quickly. Al Podges also accused Scott Franz of stealing everything in the house and pawning it, just like his brother Mark, who had a drug problem. During the argument, Al Podges held a .22 caliber rifle. Scott Franz said Al Podges then fired at least two shots at him from a sitting position on the bed, both of them missing Scott. Scott Franz later claimed that it was in this moment when, in an act of self-defense, he levered his rifle to move a shell from the magazine into the firing chamber and fired a single shot that struck Al Podges in the head, blowing out most of his brain. Less than a minute later, he heard a weapon discharge downstairs. Scott Franz ran downstairs and found Bruce Curtis standing in the living room with the rifle in his hand and Rosemary Podges laying on the floor, a pool of blood collecting below her. Bruce said, What are we going to do? When Scott Franz asked Bruce what had happened, Bruce responded, I shot your mother. Bruce said that she had come running in in response to the gunfire from upstairs, startling Bruce, and that's when Bruce's rifle had discharged, accidentally hitting Rosemary in the belly with a fatal shot. Scott pointed his rifle at Bruce Curtis and briefly considered shooting Bruce, but thought better of it because perhaps getting rid of two bodies would be easier with two people instead of creating a third one to deal with. Scott told Bruce that he did not want to leave his mother laying there like that. Rather than call the police, the two young men cleaned up the house, including some of the blood, but left a lot of it behind. They put the bodies of Rosemary and Al Podges into sleeping bags in a steamer trunk and loaded them into the van. The teens then drove across the border into Pennsylvania and dumped the bodies down on an embankment into a ravine. They also disposed of the rifles and made their way to Texas, where a sister of Scott Franz was living. A wellness check on Rosemary and Alfred's home was performed by police on the Tuesday after the shootings. One of Rosemary's daughters called the authorities, concerned for her folks when they had not shown up for work that day. They'd have let people know if they'd been planning a trip. Police found a twenty-two under an upstairs bed along with blood spatters on the wall and soaked through the sheets. Also on the property was a vinyl sports bag. The tag on the bag read, Bruce Curtis, RR Number 1, Middleton, Mount Hanley, Nova Scotia. That same day, hikers found the bodies of Rosemary and Al where Scott and Bruce had dumped them. The slangs made national news and Bruce Curtis and Scott Franz were wanted in connection with the deaths of Rosemary and Al Podges. 
It didn't take long before the cops caught up with Scott and Bruce. They were arrested in Richmond, Texas, a suburb of Dallas, on July 11th, and charged with first-degree murder. According to the Dalhousie Gazette, quote, Under New Jersey law, flight from the scene of a crime is taken as evidence of a guilty mind. Psychiatrist Dr. Harry Brunt, who examined Bruce Curtis after his arrest, says the law is wrong. He says Curtis was displaying a pure panic reaction in which his only instinct was to get away from the scene and avoid the situation altogether, as if it had never happened. Anyone could react the same way, he says. End quote. The Monmouth County prosecutor was out for blood. Bruce Curtis was painted as a thrill killer. His quiet demeanor, the prosecutor said, was the mask of a devious criminal. The prosecutor wanted to use Bruce's diary against him, in particular the writings about his friend's suicide in the months before the slayings. Bruce was the weird one. Press and members of the public called for justice. They wanted someone's head. Scott Friends rolled over quickly on his buddy, Bruce Curtis. Scott's testimony was not good for Bruce. He threw his former buddy directly under the bus, most likely as he had yet to be sentenced, and thought if he were to paint Bruce negatively, the judge might go easier on him. Scott's testimony did not match the original statements he'd given to police where he'd been more sympathetic to Bruce Curtis. At Bruce's trial for the murder of Rosemary Podges, Scott was now claiming that on the night before the shootings, Bruce Curtis indicated to Scott that Al Podges, quote, was a total pain and that we have to pay him back for making us stay outside, end quote. This statement was disputed by Bruce Curtis's defense team. In another disputed statement, Scott also claimed that later that Sunday evening, Rosemary Podges indicated to Scott that Al had found two of his collector guns underneath the mattress in the bedroom where Bruce had been staying, from an April 1984 McLean's Magazine article on the case. At his trial, Franz pleaded guilty to murder and, instead of life imprisonment, received the minimum 20-year sentence in return for testifying against Curtis. New Jersey Superior Court Judge John Arnone, whose consistently severe sentencing had earned him the nickname Never Come Home Again Arnone, and who had heard Franz's case, also tried Curtis. A voir dire was held to determine whether or not the prosecutor's inflammatory interpretations of Bruce's writing should be presented to the jury. The press was still in the courtroom during the hearing and reported on everything that was said. The interpretations were not going to be allowed, but the damage was done. There was no way that at least someone on the jury could not have heard about what was said there. In spite of the gun accidentally misfiring in court with the jury present, Bruce Curtis was still convicted. Although found not guilty of murder, he was found guilty of aggravated manslaughter and the death of Rosemary Podges. The judge sentenced Bruce to the maximum he could, 20 years with no chance of parole for 10. Bruce's family, already having spent a lot of money on their son's defense and on being there for him during his trial, began the process of filing appeals on Bruce's behalf. The Curtis family and many others believed that Bruce had been punished far too harshly for his part in what had happened. Over the next five years, appeal after appeal fell on deaf ears. It didn't seem to matter to anyone that Bruce Curtis had no previous criminal record, nor did he show any indications that he would ever again be involved in anything like what had happened to Al and Rosemary Podges. Finally, though, there was some movement. Bruce's family, 
was finally victorious in bringing Bruce back to Canada, at least. From a Maclean's Magazine article published on March 7, 1988, quote, After months of delays and bureaucratic complications, New Jersey Governor Thomas Keene announced on February 26th that he had agreed to allow Curtis to serve the remainder of his term in a Canadian prison, according to the provisions of a U.S.-Canada Prisoner Exchange Treaty ratified by the state in 1986. Curtis's mother, Alice, learned of Keene's eagerly awaited decision late Friday afternoon as she continued a protest vigil that she had started in January in front of the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa. She was, quote, delighted, she told reporters, but added, quote, we believe as strongly as ever that Bruce did not get justice. From MemoryNS.ca, quote, Curtis was transferred from a prison in Bordertown, New Jersey, to Spring Hill, Nova Scotia in 1988, and later moved to a prison in Kingston, Ontario. In 1989, Curtis was able to get day parole and enrolled as a first-year physics student at Queen's University in Kingston. The Bruce Curtis story was turned into a made-for-TV movie in 1990, entitled Journey into Darkness. The TV movie, a link for which I'll provide in this episode's show notes, is, for want of a better word, terrible. You can watch it, complete with the vintage commercials on YouTube, if you like. Somehow, it swept the Gemini Awards that followed that year. I guess there was not much competition. For locations buffs, the film was shot in Halifax and around Nova Scotia, and the now-defunct Hoagie's Steakhouse, formerly on Quimpool Road, features in one scene. Bruce Curtis was interviewed by the Canadian press, and part of that interview was released in September 24, 1989 issue of The Brandon Sun. Quote, Bruce Curtis said, the reason I wanted to become an astrophysicist since I was maybe 12 years old is that there's a certain aesthetic quality to it. I find it very beautiful, the complexity of the problem and how it all fits together. It's very organized, the way physical laws interact and create the universe. Asked to compare the Canadian and American prison system, he said, quote, I think the Canadian prison is much more into rehabilitation. It's much more concerned about the welfare of inmates. Curtis says he spent much of his days at Bordentown in its education department, tutoring prisoners in basic literacy, helping in orientation for new prisoners, interviewing them on their life expectations, and running a computer system. Asked whether he felt his imprisonment was justified, he said, quote, If one accepts the act that I committed was in fact a condition for punishment, then I don't feel I was wrongly imprisoned. End quote. Scott Franz passed away on August 4, 1997, only a year after getting out of prison. In the end, he'd stayed behind bars longer than Bruce. I found another interview with Bruce Curtis that was published in January 2002 on Canada.com. Quote, Now in Halifax, Curtis said that people don't recognize his notorious name. They don't even register, he said. While the sentence... Our known handed Curtis was meant to last until this year. He actually got off parole in 1995 because the rules were changed for Canadian criminals sentenced in the United States. The term was reduced for good behavior in accordance with U.S. laws, said his mother Alice Curtis. Bruce Curtis was then working as a genome researcher at the National Research Council's Institute for Marine Biosciences near Dalhousie University. 
He was part of a team studying the bacteria that causes furunculosis, an infection that can be deadly for both freshwater and marine life stages of Atlantic salmon, particularly in farmed fish. Rather than spending his days in a laboratory, Curtis mainly works with computers, assembling sequences of data. Despite his work as a genome researcher, he hoped one day to earn a PhD on seaweed. Specifically, he was interested in distinguishing between different types of red algae. It's an area that hasn't been well studied, even though we're constantly surrounded by seaweed on the coast, Curtis said. To the rest of the world, it's a very important area of knowledge, but for some reason we tend to ignore it here in Canada and the United States, end quote. I'm not sure what became of Bruce Curtis after that, but if the last report is any indication, he most likely continued on contributing to society via his academic research. Today, he's probably just another face in the crowd. And that's, uh, and that is the story of Bruce Curtis, Scott Franz, and the shootings of Rosemary and Al Podges. Fuck. Right? No, no dude. So <laughs> this guy thinks he's going to go spend some time in a nice big mansion on, on the ocean. Right. Maybe play some croquet. Yeah. Right. Maybe ride a horse. Yeah. And he like lands in the middle of a fucking scene from Deliverance. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, all we were missing was squeal. Well, maybe that was just not written. I don't know. It's insane. Yeah. And, you know, the guy, obviously, he did some stuff wrong. Yep. Right? And he should have had some punishment right. and, and rehabilitation. Yeah. But that judge, who is obviously out more for vengeance than justice, but seems to me, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, I mean, <clears throat> the kid, he should have, like, uh, I mean, he's probably gone through this a million times in his head. Call your parents. Right. You know, they're shooting at each other. <laughs> they were shooting at each yeah. other in the house. I grew up with, my dad had probably about 16 guns. Yeah. You know, I'm not anti-gun. Yeah. Um, we were taught to like just respect guns. Right. But that's, that's insanity. Mm-hmm. Insanity. And it's, um, you know, the kid, honestly, if you're in that situation, I would have, and I would have been holding a gun going, oh my God, I'm going to get killed. And I right. can totally understand that maybe he pulled the trigger, maybe maybe it went off, whatever. He, he was in self-defense mode. He was in fight and then in flight, right? Mm-hmm. And because of the situation he's in. So I had never experienced any domestic violence or anything like that growing up, like none. Nor in my I, house. nothing like, at all. If, if mom and dad were angry at each other, we didn't even know. Yeah, and I was I, like, even, yeah, with me, if they're angry with me, I was more afraid of disappointing them than right. being punished because it was just it was just the look of disappointment was punishment enough. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But I my first experience with domestic violence was I was staying at a friend's place while my parents were out of town and I was out with friends, other friends, and came home to this place where I was staying and opened the door and I heard screaming upstairs. So I walked up the stairs like trying to figure out what was going on. I heard my friend's mom mm-hmm. yelling, clearly in distress, and then my friend's dad right. yelling, clearly angry. And so I came upon the bedroom, looked into their bedroom because it was at the top of the stairs, the door was open, and I saw this former football player mm. having his tiny wife cowering in the corner. Horrible. And I didn't know what to do. I, I stood there kind of in stunned silence for a minute for 
it seemed like a minute, but mm. it was probably a couple of seconds. Mm. And my friend's older brother was at the bottom of the stairs saying, Mike, get down here, come down here. Right. You don't want to get involved in this. And so we went down and we hid in his room mm. in the basement until the, oh, the storm passed. That really makes me sad. It was, it was probably one of the most memorable and worst moments of my teenage yeah, years. That's sad. And, and I mean, that's, that's what was happening here. They're hiding under the porch. I mm -hmm. mean, yeah. And this kid, you know, he was a bad egg, the um, American Scott kid. Franz. Yes. Uh, but he didn't have a chance to be a good egg in so many ways. Right. If he was raised yep. that way, you know? And I think it's like you said, Bruce Curtis thought he's going to play croquet and ride horses and mm. he ends up in this place. So he, he wasn't maybe in the right headspace to even deal with all of this stuff that he was continually shocked over and over mm. and over again and traumatized by. Yeah. Because like you say, he, he expects to go get a ride in a limousine. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I Google mapped the house. Yeah. It's it, not a terrible looking place. No, it's a typical, normal, sort of older suburban looking area, right? Yeah, it's yeah. not It's not like he went to like a shack or something, but, no. but the horror uh, inside, right. right? Yeah, the house, the Amityville house is quite yeah. a nice, in quite a nice area as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, and some horrible things happened in there. It's, it's yeah. like, um, I don't know. I think uh, Bruce Curtis is a guy who, he took his lumps. He took the uh, punishment that was meted out to him. Yeah. He taught other prisoners when he was in yeah. in prison and uh, came out and is now like a contributing member of society. And that's, to me, that's good justice. Right. right? Yeah. It's not, for me, I'm. it's not about, you know, any small thing, lock everyone up for, mm -hmm. for eternity and just punish them. It's how can we move society forward. Right. Right. I mean, of course, the most egregious stuff you're locked away for the rest of your life, but for sure. this wasn't the case. No. And I think that the, the judge who threw the book at him was a little overzealous and yeah. probably just liked to be, you know, he would have been a hanging judge back in the day. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, oh, well, probably read too many cowboy stories <laughs> there in New Jersey. I don't know if there were cowboys in New Jersey. Probably. I know the Sopranos were there, so. Those are modern day cowboys, aren't they? I guess so. <laughs> and that's it for episode 171, the shootings of Alfred and Rosemary Podges. Pretty interesting stuff. Maybe I won't say pretty interesting stuff. <laughs> that was kind of a cheap throwaway line. It was line. a little, little, little coarse too. <laughs> little glub. Sorry, Rosemary, you're dead. <laughs> yeah, I won't do that. All right, so now it's on to voicemails. You can leave us a voicemail at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. That's right. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. And I have a few here for us this week. Yay. I like the calls. Here's the first one. Hey, guys. My name is Laura, or as you might see me on the barnyard, Lunia. And I'm calling you from just across the water in Victoria. I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy listening to your podcast. I am a hospital switchboard operator for Island Health Authority. And when I'm working graveyards alone in a windowless cave in the middle of the hospital, you guys keep me good company and keep me awake while I wait for the phone to ring. Keep up the great work. 
Mavis and Lexi from the barnyard say, go shit in your hat. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, that's funny. That's great. I picture it with those little those little wires. <laughs> Operator, what's your emergency? And the, <laughs> One ringy dingy. Like, uh, <laughs> and then pu- pushing them into the into little holes and all. Lily Tomlin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the operator thing that she used to do. That was pretty funny. All right, here's another old voicemail. Uh-huh. Mikey, Maddie, Eminem. It's uh, Graham from uh, Grand Prairie, Alberta. Uh, born and raised. We, uh, well, I appreciate your podcast very much. Um, been listening to it for a long time. Well, and uh, binge listening to it for over a year. Uh, I do believe the content is deep and also just the right amount of gore or discussion about the misunfortunate and the vulnerable. Yes, I can use big words as well, vulnerable, and because are some of my uh, big words in my uh, vocabulary. But... uh, I, too, would like you to take a shit in a hard hat. Take care. Grambo out. Well, thank you, I think. Uh, you uh, know, I've always, <laughs> I've always seen, I've never been to Grand Prairie. Oh, me neither. But the name makes it sound so romantic. Like, Grand Prairie, it sounds beautiful, right? Grand Prairie. I want to go out there sometime. Yeah, I think I would like to check that out. I, yeah. I need to see more of Alberta. I mean, I, I did see some of it, the lower sort of portions of it as I drove through and it's quite flat. Um, but, um. My aunt, one of my aunts recently moved to Edmonton because mm-hmm. my cousin lives there and she has babies. So grandma wanted to. Oh, and, there you and go. Grandpa wanted. So I think, uh, once this covid thing is over, I'm going to. Go to Edmonton. I've been to Calgary many times, but, uh, never Edmonton. I've never been to Edmonton either. I, I made some bad jokes about Edmonton early on in the show and had people come for me. And I don't really mean those things. I just, we're just having fun. But, but I do want to see more of the country. I'd like to sort of take a week to explore each province, you know? That would be. That would be pretty epic, I think. That'd be cool. Yeah. And territory, obviously. I want to see the territories as well. So we're going to look you up when we're taking our tour to, uh, through, through Alberta to Grand Prairie. There you go. Um, we did get one more voicemail that was really strange. Okay. And it mentions you specifically, Matthew. Oh, no. Um, and I, I think you might know who this person is. I don't know. Uh, let's, yeah. Let's have a listen. Okay. Hello? Good radio. Hi, Mark. This is Haga. I enjoy your radio program. Uh, can you please ask Matthew to buy more windows? You always forget. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Oh my God. <laughs> so this person is saying, please ask Matthew it, to buy more windows. Do you know who that is? No, I don't so know who that is. I, I told Helga, who is, uh, she helps me around the house. Um, I told her to start watching and listening to Dark Poutine, and I guess she's called in. And I do always forget to buy Windex for Helga, so oh I promise goodness. I will. So that's, that's a lovely Helga from the Helga Chronicles, everybody. Helga needs her own podcast, I think. Helga is the best, but, honestly. She's so funny. But she needs you to translate yeah. for her. Okay. No. Because her, her accent is rather... It's a fantastic accent. Yeah. It's very she's, that's Hungarian accent. She's Hungarian. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah. I had a... Uh, a friend of mine in uh, elementary school was from Hungary, mm-hmm. 
and uh, his name was Peter Portanier. Okay. Uh, it was an interesting, interesting name, and uh, we called him something very rude. No. Yeah. Do you know when you're young in Hungary? Yeah. You you drink uh, red wine with Coca Cola. What? Red wine and Coca Cola. Just to cut it. Yeah, it's it's what the kids in Hungary drink when oh. they, before they graduate to uh, drinking properly. Well, there you go. Yeah. So thank you to all our voicemail Thanks, leavers, Helga. Inc- including Helga, for sure. Uh, you can leave us one again at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. PTN. Exactly. So now it is time for us to move on to our weekly patrons, and we have, again, a lot of them. Yay. So first up, from Parts Unknown, we have Stephanie Zimmerman. Stephanie? Where's Stephanie from, Matthew? Stephanie is from Bender, Moldova. Bender. Bender. I don't want to get into the word Bender too much with you, Matthew, being <laughs> as you have been to the UK and lived there for a while. Oh, the years. UK has the best bad uh, descriptions for gay people like me. Well, okay, so Bender is one. Bender. I mean, it's just, it's so ridiculous that I laugh when everyone's, so Bender is one, which is hilarious. Yeah. Shirtlifter is Shirtlifter, and uh, my favorite is Uphill Gardener. <laughs> <laughs> I have no fucking clue what it means. So you're an Uphill Gardener. I don't know what it means. Well, so Stephanie is from Bender in Moldova. So Bender is a small republic mm-hmm. that borders Romania and the Ukraine. Okay. And um, she uh, works uh, the machine. She's a bending machine operator. Oh, so she bends things. Yeah, appropriately. Right? Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you, Stephanie Zimmerman, as you bend things in Bender. (laughs) This Bender thanks you for your bending. (laughs) Uh, Ashley Hatcher. And Ashley is from Crestview, Florida. 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 So what does Ashley do there in Florida? Ashley works at the Salvador Dali Museum. Oh, my goodness. Which is up in St. Petersburg. I don't know how close that is to our show. Really? Yeah. So she's a surrealist painting specialist. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So painting surrealist. Well, she's, she's, she's a specialist in Dali. Okay. Yeah. 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 I like Salvador Dali. Yeah. The melting clocks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The elephants. Yeah. And plus LSD. So. <laughs> Next up, we have Jade Geisbrecht, and Jade is from St. Paul, Alberta, and that, I believe, is outside of Edmonton. Okay. Yeah. So, what does Jade do there? Jade is an ATM operator. Oh, so does she help people with ATMs? No, well, she's quite short in stature. Oh, which is so she lives inside the ATM. She there's actually a little person that counts the money and slides it through once you ask for it. Well, there you She's go. She's one of them. What? I've never seen them come out for a lunch break or anything like that. Do I'm, they have to? They have tunnels underneath. They have tunnels underneath. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's very creative. <laughs> it's true. It's not creative. Well, thanks, Jade. <laughs> Next up, we have Kim, only Kim, and she is from Foothills. Actually, her name is Kim Breckenridge. And she's from Foothills, Alberta. Another Albertan. The Albertans are really stepping up. What does Kim do there in Foothills, Alberta? Kim is a professional rugby player. Wow. She's a fly half. 
What does that mean? God, I love that game. It's a position? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a, do you like, yeah, I've taken you to rugby games. Yes, you have. Yeah, rugby's, yeah. rugby's the best. We quite enjoyed that. It's the only sport that I'm into. There you go. Yeah. Next up, we have Glynis Hunter, and she is from Mississauga, Ontario. Oh, we had somebody from Mississauga last week. Yes, as we well. did. And what does Glynis do there in Mississauga? Glynis is super smart. She's a computational quantum chemist. Oh, wow. Yes. And she still listens to Dark Poutine. <laughs> I'm always surprised <laughs> by some of the jobs that people have uh, that listen to our show, especially as, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm a bit of a dum-dum myself. <laughs> so. You said it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, next up, we have Nicola Goodman and Nicola, Nicola, next up, we have Nicola Goodwin and Nicola is from Half Moon Bay in British Columbia. I like that. Half, Half Moon, Moon Bay. Half Moon Bay. Half Moon Bay. You know, I actually, I don't know, but I actually picture her running like a little art shop. She's a painter. Oh. And she has this like cute little, you know, she serves coffee and she has uh, her paintings on the wall and has a dog and a cat that sort of hang out in the shop. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's sounds sounds nice. like a half moon bay sort of thing, doesn't it? That does sound like a nice half moon bay thing. Next we have Eric Renberg. And Eric is from Blaine, Minnesota. Blaine, Minnesota. I've heard of that place. There's know. Blaine, Washington, you've probably heard of, hmm. but I don't know why you would have heard of Blaine, Minnesota. But anyway, so what does Eric do there in Minnesota? What does Eric do in Minnesota? Yeah. In Blaine, Minnesota? Yeah. I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> well, I thought he was like a, a, a newspaper press operator. And just grinding out the newspapers. Oh, no, no, you're wrong. He, he's, he's a typesetter. Well, oh, okay. So yeah. I had the wrong job, right industry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. There you go. Old school. He's, he's big into fonts. He's the font man. The font master. Font meister. <laughs> uh, next we have Donna Peebles. Donna. And Donna is from Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. I have family in Austin. I had fun in Austin. Did you? I've yeah. never been. Yeah, it's a great place. I'd like to go. Yeah. For it, South by Southwest. Of young, something. vibrant. Yeah. Yeah, I was launching a drinks brand way back when. Oh, and, way back and when. And that was uh, off Ice. And that was one of our test markets. So oh. I lit, so this was the best job ever. You have an expense account, Matthew? Go to gay bars and buy drinks for guys. <laughs> well. Oh, I got so laid. <laughs> there you go. Austin was, I have great memories of Austin. Matthew had a great time in Austin, Texas. Yeah. How about them apples? And next up we have from Mississauga, Ontario, another. Another one. Uh, our good friend, Jen Burke. Jen Burke. And what does Jen do there in Mississauga? She's a jeweler. She's a jeweler. Yeah. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Um, does she, uh, does she specialize in anything? Like any sp particular kind of gem is, would be her favorite? Or? She, she actually, I say jeweler, but she actually, she cuts diamonds. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's quite precise. That it, work. It is. Can you imagine like screwing it up? Uh, I can because I. Here is the Corinor diamond. Please cut it. The Corinor. Smash. Smash. <laughs> Just ah! shattered. Oh God. 
And that's it for patrons this week. We have a lot of them again. So Yay. We'll, we'll do start, the rest next week. Yeah, yeah well, we're yeah. going to start to run run behind, which is a good thing. I We are not complaining. We would rather not at all. run behind than, uh, than uh, not have anybody again, to talk about. Those people that Patreoned us. We'll keep them listening next week. Next up, let's move on to PayPal and see if we had any donut money this week. I think we might have had a couple. So first up, we have Levi Hansen. And I don't know where Levi is from, but but you can you can take a wild guess. Levi says, Hi Mike and Matthew. We're going to ship you donuts once we opened our new donut shop. Ooh. But thought better of it and instead sending you cash for fresh ones. Keep up the good work, <laughs> Levi Hansen. So we know what Levi does. He makes donuts That's and amazing. he runs a donut shop. Uh, Levi, if you want to let us know where your donut shop is. Because I'll be there. Matthew will be there, but we will tell people, go see <laughs> Levi at his donut shop. What does, where is Levi? Let's just assume. Where is he? Yeah. Uh, he's from... Lapin ran to Finland originally. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. And what does he do there? Well, well we already well, know. Well, before, before he started his donut shop, he, yeah. he was a, a Lapin ranter. Okay. Um, so he stands on a racetrack and um, runners. He rants at them as they lap. He, yeah, rants at them, telling them their shit. They're going too slow to keep them going. Oh. Yeah. Well, you know. Have you ever been to Lapin ranta? No. Like southern Finland, like 30 miles from the Russian border. Have you been there? Yeah, don't ask. (laughs) (laughs) Was there prison involved? No, but I just sort of got off the train and it was the middle of the night and the city was sort of, the town, the lights were sort of in the distance and the snow was coming down like those crystals and my hands were swollen up and peeling. That's why I was there and I was all drugged up on medication and I was trying to find a doctor. It was just a bizarre time. Wow, that sounds really weird. Yeah, because I didn't trust, I was living in Moscow. I didn't want to see a Russian doctor. So there's an American so, doctor, but he was in Lapping Ranta that week. So, so I took a train to Lapping Ranta and my hand just showed up at his office. My hands. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Well, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little bit of a segue. Wow. Donuts, yes. Please tell, tell us where your job exactly. is. Exactly. Next up, we have David Gaddis. Um, he says, I only currently subscribed to two other podcasts, the most expensive being $13, so I thought I'd offer you some more. Well, thank you, David. Okay. Uh, my name is Sarah Galt. Well, I guess David Gaddis is the account that she's using. Okay. And I'm in New Hampshire, USA, so we're good for a place. Nice. For a job, I, I sell... Oh, she's even oh, telling us Oh, thank you. This is hard sometimes. I sell pieces of your childhood back to you. I restore vintage toys from the 1980s and early 90s and do 1960s doll repair. That's actually really cool. That is a very friggin' <laughs> cool job. If you want to leave us your actual job in the uh, or make one up for yourself, feel free. We'll we'll use it. Absolutely. Uh, she says she's found her our lovely show through a random string of other true crime podcasts, and that eventually led to us. And after okay, so. Thank you so much, Sarah Galt. Now for, I'm sitting here thinking of all the toys from when I was a kid. Right. And I want, I want, I want to A, find them and then B, get Sarah to fix them up. For to me. repair them. One toy that I really missed was, um, I used to have the G.I. Joes. Do you remember G.I. Joe? The actual tall G.I. Joes, yeah. not the little tiny figures, but yeah. the, the, yeah. the poseable 
mm-hmm. large ones. Uh, I had one who had a brass diving helmet and a canvas diving suit and then brass boots with a lead weight mm. around his waist. So it, it was like a real diving outfit. And the problem was I had him on a fishing line and put him out over the back of the boat that was moving, <laughs> not understanding <laughs> physics at the time. And you don't understand physics now. Well, not well. I understand (laughs) this well enough now that I would not do this again, probably because I learned it then. Yeah. But the line snapped. So somewhere in the ocean, probably fathoms deep is standing my little tiny GI Joe in his diving bell, uh, with his diving helmet and all that kind of stuff. So I would love to have that back. I didn't have one of those. No, I did. I, my brother once said to me, he's like, I realized you were gay when you asked for and got an easy bake oven for Christmas. <laughs> I was like 10. I wanted an easy bake oven. Yeah. There's no problem with that. And you know, easy bake to stop making them pink all the time. A little girl actually wrote in saying my brother would like to easy bake as well. Why is it pink? And so I was just ahead of the curve, people. I was ahead of the curve. There you go. But yeah. I don't mind pink. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Yeah, that. but you know, the whole sort of pink is for girls and blue is for boys and oh, yeah. everything's this way. But yeah, baking with the light bulb, it was so, it was actually a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 Now I want a cake. I did have a Stretch Armstrong that I liked. I, I did not stretch? have Stretch Armstrong. Uh, my friend Tim had a Stretch Armstrong that we used to play with. My dog Sandy chewed his arm off and it had this like syrup stuff. Yeah, this stuff. weird goo, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember slime that came in the yeah, bucket? Yeah. And, like, and uh, you squeeze it between your fingers. Squeeze it between your fingers and it smelled weird. Yeah, well, that's because it smelled like little kids' hands touching it all the time. All <laughs> yeah, all those little germs. Thank you to all our patrons and donut money donors, a past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash dark poutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on iTunes podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. I actually updated it last week. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg. And and not not a bad apple. A bad apple, that's right. (laughs) Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copycat on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. 
You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner, all new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.